welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. I hope everyone had a great weekend. I'm in Idaho as this week begins, working in Nampa today and tomorrow. Nampa is a city about 20 to 30 minutes west of Boise. And of course, as some of you know, I'm a proud graduate of Boise State University. So I was actually here in Boise over the weekend and I had a chance to see a football game on Friday night, which is fantastic. I have not done that since 1991. So that was great. And then on Saturday morning, I took a couple of hours to walk around the campus. There is just something about a college campus in the fall. You know, the colors, the traditional architecture blended with the modernization of the school. Uh, the campus has changed so much since I went to school here, but, but the core is still there. It was a beautiful, sunny Saturday morning, so I grabbed a cup of coffee and I walked around the campus soaking up all of the memories from my days in school. I saw my old dorm, the whole thing. It was really, really great. Uh, such a great trip down memory lane, and, and yet seeing how expansive the campus is now and how modern it is now is actually quite impressive. And also I want to say Boise is a totally underrated city as far as I'm concerned. I know I'm a little biased, but honestly, whatever you think you know about Boise, think again. Uh, the school really is, in many ways, uh, what the city revolves around, so its influence is quite far-reaching. And one more thing, remember, it's Boise, not Boise. Uh, I remember being swiftly corrected when I was a freshman in the fall of 1985 about how to pronounce the name, so it's with an S, not a Z or a Z, okay? It's Boise, not Boise. All right, enough about that. Thanks for listening in again this week, and as always, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to those of you who've been loyal listeners for a while now. I appreciate all of you. This is, of course, episode 50, so I will be announcing the 12 for 12 winner in short order. Today, my guest is my friend, my colleague, and my co-author, Garnet Hillman, so of course, this is going to be an assessment and grading conversation. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to focus on engineering classroom conversations to elicit formative assessment evidence. It's honestly one of the most underutilized assessment strategies, so we're going to get into that. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Garnet Hillman is coming up, but first, don't at me. Well, actually, maybe this week, it's okay, so sure, go ahead and at me. Because this week, I want to open with some thoughts about milestones. This is, of course, as I mentioned earlier, episode 50, and you know that. And it feels like a milestone, though it really isn't. I mean, 50 is just a nice round number. We like round numbers, right? Oh, I'm turning 30, I turn 40, I turn 50. We like those round numbers. Now, of course, there are certain milestones that actually have some significant impacts on our lives, right? So you turn 16, and in most places, you can begin the process of getting your driver's license. You turn 18, and you can vote. There are certain thresholds for legal consumption of alcohol in North America. It depends on where you are in Canada, the United States, etc., 65 tends to still be that magical age of retirement. You know, there's, there's lots of different thresholds. And when that benchmark for retirement, for example, became the norm, it then gave us a measure upon which we could measure our own success in retirement. Retire before 65 and we celebrate. Needing to work past 65 was met with a little bit of empathy, right? It's too bad that you have to. And look, I know that some people choose to keep working after 65, long after 65, and they love it. And, and nothing wrong with that. 
But if you ask the majority of people, they probably would say they'd rather retire before 65. I mean, even some of these milestones are somewhat arbitrary. They are the law, you know, in terms of voting and, and driving and all of that. But 50 podcast episodes? Well, that's only a milestone because I say it is. And because I say it is, it is. So I want to celebrate that. I mean, milestones are how we mark important events in our lives, you know, within our families or with our friends. Some milestones are universal. Like when you think about children, the milestones of, you know, your first, their first words or they took their first steps or the first this or first that, whatever. And some milestones are self-determined, right? It's my first 5K or my first marathon or something like that. These milestones give our lives some structure that allows us to reflect on our successes, our progress, or even our transitions to new phases. As we approach the end of 2021, undoubtedly some of us are going to be declaring some New Year's resolutions. We'll make a declaration that in 2022 we're going to exercise more, we're going to eat healthier, we're going to read more, you know, the usual stuff. But in reality, you could start tomorrow. You want to eat healthier? you could start tomorrow. You want to join the gym and start exercising or yoga or whatever? Yep, you could start tomorrow. You want to read more? You guessed it. You could start tomorrow. But most of us don't because that milestone, that marker is important. The calendar turning from 2021 to 2022 is a psychological marker that serves as a kind of reset for some aspects of our lives, you know, some aspect that we're hoping to improve. And I say there's nothing wrong with that. Plus, let's be honest, beginning your healthier eating regime heading into December is probably not wise. (laughs) And for those in the United States, of course, your Thanksgiving is coming up next week. So starting the new eating habits is definitely not a good idea until you get through the holiday season. But you could start any new habit at any time, but the marker of the new year is significant for people. I know there are some who react a bit cynically to New Year's resolutions, mostly because most of us don't typically stick with them anyway. But I often wonder, like, why people care? Like, why do you care if I set a resolution or not? Like, who cares? It doesn't affect you. So why even have an opinion? You don't want to set a resolution? You don't want to do something like that? Okay, fine. Yeah, great. No problem. Like, that's on you. It's it's your call. I don't know why people have such strong opinions about things that don't really affect them. Anyway, if, if it matters to you, then it matters, right? Milestones, whether they are societally significant, things like graduation, things with children, retirement, as we've talked about, or whether your milestones are personal, you know, fitness levels, reading, all the things we've talked about, They give us something to work toward. They give us something to maintain. They give us a way to reinvigorate our lives. They bring some meaning to to our existence. So 50 episodes feels like something to celebrate. And in celebrating, I just want to say thank you. I know there are podcasts out there with more listeners. There's podcasts out there with more episodes. There's podcasts out there with larger followings, all of that. I know the podcast landscape has never been more crowded But you know what? This isn't about comparisons. None of that matters. What matters is that some of you have been with me since day one, since September of 2020, and you've listened to every episode, and I appreciate you. What matters 
is that some of you heard about the podcast on social media or from a colleague and you started listening at, say, episode 15 or episode 18 or 27 or 40 or even this is your first episode. And I just want to say I appreciate you too. What matters is that some of you don't listen to every episode or don't listen to every segment, but you're still listening to something and I want to appreciate you too. I mean, in your totality as listeners, you have made this podcast a, la- a truly a labor of love, and I really do care about the content you consume each week. I think of you when I craft these opening segments, hoping to cause you to reflect or to think or to even push back or even disagree. I think of you when I schedule the guests to ensure that we have a variety of thoughtful, influential people who will challenge you, reaffirm you, teach you, and inspire you, and selfishly, They do the same thing for me. I think of you when I ask the questions of those I'm interviewing. I think about what it is you all might want to know or you all might need to hear. It's also what I want to know or where I want to push. And I think of you during the assessment corner segment, although I have to say I could use a few more questions from you, the listeners, (laughs) uh, because I'm just choosing topics that I think would be helpful for you in your personal assessment journeys. And, and maybe that's okay, and, and maybe you're just fine with that, but that's what I think about when I try to craft that segment. I know it's corny and cliche to say that without you, this podcast wouldn't exist, but it really is true. Knowing that so many of you are invested in each episode inspires me to do my best to bring you something worthy of your time. I know how busy educators are, and so the fact that I've been able to carve out 60 to 90 minutes of your time each week is truly an honor, and I am grateful to each and every one of you. I'm not going to say I'm humbled, because many of you know how I feel about the public use of the word humble. (laughs) Look, when you tell people how humble or humbled you are, it is the opposite of humility, okay? All right, all right, I won't go there. All right, (laughs) I've talked about that before. Uh, I can't believe how humble I am. All right, not doing that. We've hit a milestone. You know, 50 episodes is just cool to say. And we did have a contest, right? We had the 12 for 12 contest, and we have a winner. The winner is Heidi Bodnerchuk, who is from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Now, listeners, her Twitter handle is at Heidi Bods. So Heidi is spelled H-I-E-D-I-B-O-D-S, at Heidi Bods. So maybe... Get on to Twitter and, and give Heidi a follow. Now, she tweeted out that she listens to the podcast while her kids do crafts. Now, that reminds me of crafting with my kids when they were younger and the crafts they used to do. And I always think about those memes, you know, those, those picture contrasts where you'd say what you think crafting with your kids will be like and then what it's actually like. You know, what you think crafting with your kids will be like, you know, tranquil, soft music, everyone in their zen, creating something wonderful, you know, the Christmas carols going. And then there's what crafting with your kids actually looks like. Glitter everywhere, trying to scrape glue off the floor, arguing over who gets the scissors next, all of that. I'm sure in Heidi's home, it's the latter. (laughs) Anyway, um, she said she listens while crafting with her kids or her kids are doing crafts. And she had actually 15 people tweet out that they had subscribed to the podcast, which was the most by quite a margin. So 
Heidi wins the 12 hours of coaching in the 12 for 12. So uh, a big thank you to the rest of you for your efforts. I really do appreciate any effort that you put toward winning the contest, which of course benefited the podcast in terms of expanding the listening audience. So again, I really do want to thank you for that. 50 episodes, right? That that does sound kind of cool. Uh, I'm proud of that. Uh, but more importantly, I'm excited to see where the next 50 episodes go. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Here today for the interview is Garnet Hillman. Uh, Garnet started her career in education as a high school Spanish teacher and also served as an instructional coach. She has been an assessment center associate with Solution Tree since May of 2015 and has co-authored five books on grading, assessment, and developing student leaders, including one book that she co-authored with myself and Mandy Stalitz, known as Standards-Based Learning in Action. Garnet is also one of the co-founders of the SBL Chat on Twitter, and I remember back in the day when it was SBG Chat, uh, and that's actually through that Twitter chat is how I first be, uh, became connected to Garnet. So Garnet is a friend, a colleague, and most importantly, a powerful voice and advocate within the assessment and grading reform world. So I'm excited to have Garnet here. Garnet, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so it's uh, it's great to have you here. And obviously, you and I work very closely together. And I have just a tremendous amount of respect for you and the work that you do. Uh, I'm going to pretend like I don't know how you might answer some of these questions. So I'll put my podcast host on because you and I have talked about assessment and grading, uh, you know, countless times. And of course, we co-authored the book together. So but I'm but I'm really excited for listeners to hear your responses and, and your perspective uh, on assessment. So I'm, I'm excited to see where this conversation goes. So let's let's start with you uh, personally and, you, and your career. Uh, you know, most, most educators don't begin their careers with this declaration that they want to become an assessment and grading expert. It's probably <laughs> the last area that we're drawn to, right? It's not the sexiest part of our jobs, that's for sure. But here you are, Garnet. You are an accomplished author. You are a sought-after workshop facilitator. And you are an inspiration to so many people. So tell us a little bit about your story, specifically your assessment story, and even more to the point, what was the pivotal moment for you? Like where, where was that assessment epiphany where you decided that this is what I'm going to focus my professional career on? Yeah, so um, when I started teaching, uh, I was incredibly traditional. Uh, I did what had been done to me throughout the years. Um, I mean, sometimes I was almost a mean teacher. Uh, assessment wise, it was definitely one and done. Um, the other thing that reflecting back on my teaching, it was really a one-size-fits-all endeavor where I had the first nine weeks planned out. Yeah, that, that doesn't go that way, you know, but, <laughs> but that's right. It doesn't go that way. Um, but anyway, that, that was really where I started from is that was really harsh with my grading and my assessment practices. And if you really think about it, I was pretty harsh with instructional practices because if it was laid out day to day what we were doing, you know, that's not being as responsive uh, as I needed to be. And so over time, uh, I really did start to switch my focus. And looking back, the biggest shift was that instead of being task focused, I was learning focused. I mean, we get into education because we care about kids and care about their learning. And I definitely did. Uh, but my lens was just, it, it was askew. 
Uh, so when I really started focusing on learning, I started changing my practices. Um, I went to several trainings on differentiation so that I didn't do so much of this one size fits all teaching uh, with the kids. And eventually over time, when I was so learning focused, meeting the kids where they are really finding out where they started, I realized that my assessment and grading practices uh, were fighting one another. Yeah. And that's really the pivotal moment. There, there, yeah, there's always that tension, right? Between it, it's it's so interesting to me that you know you and I share that kind of part of our histories in a way that it's sometimes the the harshest graders or the most the the, the, the toughest assessment teachers are sometimes the biggest advocates now for more modern grading practices. And, and, and so we always hit that point where there's a misalignment between our teaching and, and, and our grading and the way that, that sort of that plays out. You know, you talk about this and I've talked about this as well. How do you explain to people when you, when, when you try to explain to people, you know, I'm focused on learning, not the tasks. Sometimes for folks, that line is blurry. So what's the simplest yet most effective way that you explain the difference about being task oriented versus being learning focused? Well, we have to really think about the learning first. It has to come first because what we think about first and then what we communicate first to kids matters. Uh, and the tasks have to support the learning. It's just that we can't flip it the other way, right? That you have to decide what it is that you want kids to know, understand, be able to do what you want them to learn and demonstrate. And then we have to be really intentional about choosing tasks that are going to support that instead of vice versa, selecting tasks and then going, oh, what learning is going to happen alongside of this? Because I'll tell you, I mean, another red flag, once I was able to see it, uh, was that if I introduced a new assignment or assessment, something I had made, maybe a project I was excited about, and the hands shoot up in the air, it, question number one was, will this be graded? And if the answer was yes, question was number two was, how many points is it worth? And I knew I had a problem, right? There's the task first in its most plain form. And I knew I had to make, make some changes and talk about learning first. So not just think about it as a teacher, but talk about it help the kids along with that idea. Because as you know, I taught high school. Um, and by then the grade focus is pretty heavy. Yeah. It's, it's just so unfortunate that, that over the course of say a generation or more that we've, we've turned grading into this transactional relationship, this, you know, I do this, what do I get? And this point exchange and, and this compliance issue. And so many of us, I think have gone through this epiphany because we, we realize that, you know, some of those questions come from, you know, do I have to care about this assignment or not? And some of those questions about, are you grading this are a question that really is sourced from stress and anxiety and, yeah. and, and tension that, that kids feel around school. And that maybe there's a little bit of oxygen. If you say, no, this isn't being graded. There's a little bit of space and it takes some of the pressure off. I had, to, I've had some interesting conversations lately about that question. Are you grading this? Because I think it's very easy to see that question as quite cynical. You know, that, that the student's asking this, like, is this a, a place I can cut corners or not? Are you grading this? Right. If you're not grading it, I'm not doing it. And I think that's a simple way to look at it. And that does occur. There's no question. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes when you, when, you ask, when, you, when you analyze that question from the perspective of stress, anxiety, you know, hope, efficacy, all the things that we talk about, you start to see a very different outcome. What's your experience with that? Do you, have, do you, when, you when you think about that question, um, have, you, have you talked to teachers about, you know, the idea of looking at it through a different lens, maybe? Yeah, you know, it's really that, that student lens as much as you possibly can, right? We can't take the place of a student right now. Um, mm -hmm. But a lot of times, especially at the secondary, it comes down to, we talk about prioritization. 
because a lot of times that's actually what the question is asking. For some kids, it's what you said, am I going to do it or not? But for many students, it's how am I going to prioritize? My time is limited outside of school in order to get, you know, things taken care of that I need to. We know kids are really busy. And so it's where do where does that fit on my list? And so when we talk about that, you know, it's just it's really a good conversation to have with teachers and really what is your intention? What is your purpose with what it is you're assigning kids? Because, I mean, we know what those schedules look like. Yeah, it, 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 that, that is such a, a good point, because I think one of the things that we could reflect on uh, is the fact that students have that list in their heads or, or even on paper that they have to prioritize may give us a clue that maybe we're overloading them uh, in ways that we aren't aware of uh, and thinking about that. So let's, let's pivot here a little bit and talk about the current assessment landscape. Um, you and I, of course, are heavily involved in supporting individual teachers and whole faculties in developing their assessment literacy. But I'm wondering this, Garnet, from, from your perspective, what's one aspect of assessment that, again, from your perspective, is not really getting the amount of attention it deserves in today's schools or today's classrooms, something that you think is underappreciated or maybe not given enough profile in professional learning situations, but it really deserves that because you know, uh, and I know, or we all know that it has a, a significant impact on student learning. So what is that one or more aspects of assessment you think are not getting the attention it deserves? Well, a lot of the work that I'm doing now with teachers, one thing I've really noticed is that for me, it's important to spend as much time on the emotional side of assessment as on the clinical side of assessment. Uh, And I feel like sometimes we get involved in that clinical side really, really heavily. And it's that science of teaching, right? What are the standards? What are the targets? How am I assessing it? How am I grading it or scoring it? What am I doing? Every bit of that is important. We know that. Equally important are the kids, their emotions. What are they bringing to the table? Because if I'm trying, I mean, what is our purpose in assessments? Gathering evidence, right? Gathering evidence of what students know, understand, able to do. And I need a whole picture of that evidence. Is the evidence getting skewed by something emotional? Do I need to go around a different way to grab some of that evidence? And I just, um, the, the work that I've done this fall, that theme has come up and come up again. And the neat part is when I've been really just proactively bringing it up, the teachers start nodding along. The teachers say, oh, yes, yes, we've been really talking about all of that clinical stuff and our SMART goals and all that. And it's not that that isn't important. Of course it is. Uh, But there's more to the story, I guess. Uh, And we really want to pull that out. Um, And just one thing from personal experience, I reflect on a lot now, and I'll share this with teachers, um, is that I have a family of four. I have two boys, as you know, Tom, they're in high school, I have a sophomore and a senior in high school, and my husband. And the four of us experienced assessment in very different ways or currently experience it. And I was a grade grubber, I'll be totally honest. (laughs) I was the one that assessment was about winning the assessment, right? How many points can I get and all of that. My husband is the complete opposite. And I ask him a lot of questions because assessment for him was getting by. Mm -hmm. What can I do to do the bare minimum to get by? Our eldest son is the one you want as a teacher that he's pretty confident. We know kids do better when they come in confident. And I'm not going to lie. Sometimes he's a little overconfident, right? But overall, you know, you want them to come in feeling prepared. And our younger son um, is diagnosed with OCD and anxiety. 
And so you can start to imagine as an educator what assessment is like for him. Uh, and that's four people. <laughs> and there's four different reactions, right? Not on the clinical side, on the other side to assessment. And teachers have, you know, if you're an elementary level, you have 30. If you're at the secondary level, you got 150, 160 um, kids coming in. So I just think that right now, what I'm seeing personally is that we cannot leave that behind that emotional side of assessment and what it brings to the table so that we know as much as we can about kids and their learning. Yeah. It, I, you know, I, I, you know, preaching to the choir here, Garnet, in terms of the, uh, the emotional side of assessment, we know that, uh, and we know that assessment is technical and there is a depth and breadth to understanding sound assessment practices. It does take work and it takes time for us to understand, but that emotional side of assessment is really important. But I know you get this question as I get this question too. You know, maybe easy to say, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to pick on secondary teachers, but sometimes secondary teachers say, you know, listen, how am I supposed to do that? I, I have 120 students, 150 students on my rosters. They come through my door every day. How am I supposed to be attentive to the emotional side of assessment? I, I, I can't know each of their emotional idiosyncrasies. Uh, that's just not possible. It's not plausible for me. And it's not to suggest that secondary teachers are heartless or cold or anything like that, because they're not. They care about their students just as much. It can come off that way, but that's not really what they're about. But they're looking at the sheer volume of it. So what's your answer to that? When somebody says to you, Garnet, how do I attend to the emotional aspects of assessment for 150 students in my classes, 120 mm -hmm. students in my classes, or even 75 students or whatever the number sure. might be, what, what's the response from you? Like, how, how, do you, how do you help them navigate through that side of the conversation? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we know the relationships are the foundation for that and developing those early with your kids, because even when you have 150, when some walk in, you know, the better you get to know them. So, I mean, that is a, a big part of it. Uh, but also at the secondary level, we want to teach kids to self-advocate uh, and encourage them that way, that if something is going on, if it's going to impact your assessment, you need to bring it up to me. So we can kind of pull it from them, but bring them to the table. You can have them do reflection pieces, you know, maybe after the assessment, what felt good, you know, what was difficult. I mean, it's really just trying to find the different ways that you can get that information from the kids. Uh, but mm -hmm. some of it we can see, even with 150 kids, you know, that was my, I had 150-ish kids. Uh, but some of it, too, we really want, as the kids get older, to be able to identify in themselves, bring it forward, or elicit it through some type of reflection. Um, I think a lot of times, too, we can tell if there might be something emotional getting in the way, even if we can't see it as teachers, if what we have seen through the formative process does not agree with what we're seeing in the summative process. If there's a mismatch, that's our call to action. As, as right. educators to say what's going on and there might be a hidden emotion in there that we may be able to tap into. So, I mean, there's no easy answer to that question. I know you know that, uh, mm -hmm. but I think we just have to attack it from multiple yeah. ways. Yeah. Boy, I, I love that idea of self-advocacy, right? Like the, the efficacy that students can have and the way they can advocate for themselves uh, have it come in that direction as opposed to the teacher having to pay attention. We obviously are going to pay attention to some of the extreme reactions that we might see, but being able to teach students how to advocate for themselves is that lifelong skill that we certainly hope that they develop. So let's flip this around now. So, so that's something that you don't think is getting enough attention, but let's flip this around and think about any aspects in assessment that you think might be getting oversold. And here's what I mean by that. You know, you might be a little perplexed that 
that these this aspect or these aspects of assessment are getting a disproportionate amount of attention in PD sessions or on social media. Now, that's not to say the aspect might not be important. I don't want to misunderstand here. This this you know the aspect is important, but it's but it's maybe the conversation is slightly hyperbolic about this particular aspect given the fact that from your perspective, you see it as a, a low yield kind of assessment practice or an aspect that you just don't think is worth the time investment. So are there any assessment practices from your perspective that are, are a little oversold in the conversations? Uh, in the conversations I'm having, one thing that did stick out uh, is, is the labeling piece of assessment. And I talk a lot with teachers and they just want to label everything. And again, it goes back to task, right? This is a formative assessment. This is a summative, a pre -assess I mean, keep going, right? And they are spending so much time thinking about how to label it when really, what do we want? That's just the purpose. We want you to be intentional about your purpose with assessment and gathering evidence, but it is just a process. You know, we talk a lot about that assess as a verb, but helping teachers see that and move away from the, the event to the process takes time. Yeah. Uh, but I do, I get in these conversations and it's like, well, this is a summative assessment, right? Treating it as the thing. And I said, okay, well, instead of focusing on the label, what is it that you're trying to get them to show you? How are you going about grabbing that? What are we gonna do if they don't? What are we going to, you know, I mean, it's it, the label seems to trip people up and then it goes into the grade book too. Yeah. The label carries over, right? If it's mm -hmm. labeled formative, can I grade it? If it's labeled summative, is it the only thing that, you, I mean, you know, the conversations that come from that. Sure. Uh, but I've just seen too much time. I'm not saying, like you said, I'm not saying it's not important to consider purpose. It absolutely is. But labeling mm -hmm. the task that we, we shouldn't be spending so much time labeling tasks. Right, I don't think. Right. Right. We're spending, you know, and, and I would agree with you. That is one conversation that I've been a part of as well, which is, again, I think people really shouldn't misunderstand. We're not saying that you shouldn't have that purpose in mind, but it's the overthinking of the label because labeling something formative doesn't make it so. And I've said that repeatedly for, for years. It's the use of that evidence that allows us to determine whether it's formative or summative, right? So I love that because I think, again, that's something where we're overthinking, especially when you're assessing at the standard level where it really isn't, I mean, you could have a purpose in mind, but it's not necessary to pre-label it summative or formative just gather the evidence and use it summatively for those who get it and use it formatively for those who need more time and more intervention um i think that's a that's a good one yeah I, the other one i often see is the overthinking of the symbols you know when people are transitioning they spend hours should we use numbers should we keep our letter grades should we use descriptors I am so agnostic when it comes to to those symbols because it's really what they mean right and people spend hours debating whether or not we should go four three two one or keep our a b c d and Really, those are both four levels and they're just symbols. It's the meaning behind those symbols. So I see that one a lot as, as well. Um, yeah. So I wanna now ask you a hypothetical from, from a perspective of, again, assessment and grading, hypothetical. So a university professor who's teaching a class in assessment to aspiring teachers calls you up and asks you or says to you, hey, Garnet, uh, you know, listen, I've been reading some of your books and following you on Twitter and I really love what you're doing. So would you be interested in coming to one of my classes as a guest speaker? You'll have about an hour with these aspiring teachers, these university students, okay? So you agree to go to the university and be a guest lecturer. You've got one hour to be in front of, you know, a, a room full of aspiring teachers. So if you had an hour with them to talk about assessment, what would you say? What would you talk about? What would you prioritize? How would you help that 
that group of aspiring teachers understand the core important ideas of, of assessment? Mm-hmm. First of all, that would be really exciting. It would be, <laughs> Working yeah, with pre-service teachers, absolutely, because I do think back to my undergrad and some things that were not addressed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'll, I did not have an assessment course, not even close. So anyway, that would be really exciting. And and if I did have the time to spend with them, uh, I really do think that it would be important to to talk that backward design with regard to assessment. That you have got to know your standards. You've got to be able to um, break those down in order to assess well. If, if we don't do that, our assessment is all over the place. What are we assessing? Well, we're assessing what we taught. Well, did I teach the same thing if I have a teaching partner? You know, and it goes down that path. Mm-hmm. And I would just spend some time really talking about you're going to need to be very intentional crafting your assessment tools. And here's the way to do it is know exactly what you want to assess at the outset. Know what it means know what it demands of the kids. So you can plan your assessment, both summative and formative purposes, Mm -hmm. you know, to really align with that and and pull Mm -hmm. that together. But it really would be, that's where I would start, would be backward design. And then one other thing I, you know, this is something that um, you and I have talked about and I I use your phrase and I credit it to you as we really have to talk about assessment length. And so what the thing I use is that, you know, the summative doesn't have to be an epic event. (laughs) right but it doesn't it doesn't and that's talking about that 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 the length of an assessment is determined by how much evidence you need to make Mm -hmm. the judgment about what your you know is it formative and what I'm doing next teaching wise is it summative and I'm making that you know judgment um, of proficiency level or what have you is that you know there's never enough time right there's never enough time so let's make sure we're being very efficient effective on the side of standards, targets, plan, pre-planning your assessment, but then efficient on the other end of it. Right. Uh, but that, that's where I think I would start with teachers. Okay. But of course, you know, we can go on and on. You never know where they go. Okay. So you're, so you're, fif- you're 50 minutes into that conversation, right? You've gone okay. 50 minutes. You've talked to them about standards, uh, designing mm-hmm. your assessments, making sure we're effective and efficient. One of the pre-service teachers in that classroom raises their hand. You've got 10 minutes left and says, Mrs. Hillman, what about grading? What am I supposed to do about grading and producing a report card? Now you have 10 minutes to coach them up on grading. Now I know it takes more than 10 minutes. We know that. But if you (laughs) had 10 minutes, this is almost like the elevator answer. What are some of the key things that you're going to tell? Remember, they have no experience. They're they're Mm pre-service teachers. They're only experiences as students. And they probably were many of them, a bunch of grade grubbers. Who knows? (laughs) Me. But but let's, 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 what, what do you say in that 10 minutes about grading? Mm -hmm. What are the key ideas? Yeah. I mean, grading has got to be about reporting student learning. And if we go back to that central idea, what is your purpose for grading? If we can establish that, then all of your practices can be run through that. If my purpose is to communicate where students are in relation to those standards at that given moment in time, right, you're handed a marking period, then I have got to make sure I fulfill that mission. And I am reporting. And like you said, the symbols, you know, I'm neither here nor there with those as well. But I want my grades to mean something. And in order for them to mean something, they have to fulfill the purpose. So I would encourage the teachers to really think about what their purpose is when they grade so that they can make their practices align. Because again, I mean, it's so busy. 
if we don't have that ingrained, we're just grading because we have got to get it done and put things in the book and keep mm-hmm. going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love the focus on, you know, it always starts. That's always the question, right? The standards, because once you decide that grades will be a reflection of learning, reflection mm-hmm. of the standards, then all else that does not contribute to that is handled elsewhere. And we really do bring meaning. And the idea of making sure that our grades mean something, I think is a really important, uh, important idea for sure that you and I have talked about many, many times before. Mm-hmm. So let's stick with grading now. And before we finish up uh, our conversation, I want to talk about grading. And of course, you and I co-authored a book together with Mandy and are very much aligned in our thinking about grading or standards-based grading or sound grading or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. But there are still you know, in, in somewhat surprising that in now 20 or 30 years of teaching to standards, people still resist the, the idea of, of standards-based grading, grading based mm-hmm. on standards. There are still enough holdouts and, and people resistant to that. And I think enough to notice to make the transition to sound grading practices challenging in many contexts. So mm-hmm. when you work with individuals or you work with teams and they're trying to make the shift to sound grading practices... What advice do you give them for how to approach the resistors? So you've got people in the school. It's a large enough group. may may not be the majority, but it's a large enough group to notice. What's the best way to approach those who are reluctant to change or even reluctant to have the conversation with their colleagues? Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, it's really important to ask questions. Just like with students, we have to figure out where these teachers are and where they're coming from. Uh, grading can be very personal. We, we have a lot of things that that are provided to us, right? Here are your standards, you know, here are your standardized tests and so on and so on. But the grading is something that's that's mine and I own it. And if we don't grab their perspective, we can't help them move forward. And so that would be my first piece of advice is we just need to sit down. We have to have candid conversations about, you know, where are you with grading? What, and go back to purpose, right? What is your purpose for grading? Uh, before we can move on. I mean, I was an instructional coach and I had to have numerous conversations where really all I did was ask questions because we weren't going to be able to move and do anything until I honored where they were. Um, I just think that's so important is honoring the work that teachers have already done because they work so hard. They do so much for these kids. Like you said, they care so much about these kids that if we don't honor what's happening or the work that's being done, uh, yeah, I mean, why would I, no, you know, if you're not, if you don't even know where I'm starting, why would I, why would I subscribe to what, you know, what you're talking about? And Mm -hmm. and I also think that whenever you're asking someone to change, you're really going to have to show them that it's worth it. If it's not worth it, I don't have the time for it. You know, so what is going to be worth it about me changing my grading practices? Once you've shifted the conversation, right? You ask a bunch of questions, you can start moving in that direction, start talking about purpose, but you also do have to ground it in, hey, you know, this is what we're going to get. We're going to get more accurate grades out of this. Why is that important? You know, Um, because if we, if we don't get there, honor the work that they've done, then we, you know, say change is tricky but here's what you're going to get out of it. I, I don't think we have a good basis to start that conversation. Right. The uh, helping people see the why, mm-hmm. uh, why the change is important. And I, I love that advice about asking questions because, you know, so often, and I know you've seen this, 
what looks like resistance is sometimes a lack of clarity. Now, sometimes people are resistant, but sometimes people don't understand. And if you're a veteran teacher, it's really hard to admit publicly that you don't understand what something would look like. And so it's easier and it's a, it's a classic way to save face is to say, well, that's a bad idea. Or we tried that before and it didn't work and those types of things. And so if you can get that person in their private moment or the small group and just find out right. why they're hesitant, why they're resistant. Sometimes, you know, I've, I know in the past I've been sur surprised by the fact that it wasn't a cynical sort of resistant to the conversation. It was a lack of understanding, but to admit that publicly was challenging for folks. Have you oh, seen yeah. that? Have you seen that, that, that idea? Have you experienced that? Yeah, absolutely. And it, because, I mean, I think for me as a teacher, that would have been hard. Just yeah. go and say, I, I don't, I don't understand it. I don't get it. Um, but to have that personal conversation and really be able to dive in to where the misconception may lie, uh, it, it's super powerful. And we also know that once we can get the ball rolling, you know, we know we can we can gain traction and we can gain momentum. And if some of those people who may seem the strongest resistors and maybe they are not, maybe they, again, just need some explanation or need to ground themselves in purpose. If we start getting them to move, we can get more and more. Right. We build momentum. And, you know, one of the things I think is is important is it, it doesn't matter where they start, but we just can't stay there. Right. It's with kids too. As long as we're moving, everyone's going to move at different paces. That's learning. Welcome to learning. Right. <laughs> and I think, right. I mean, that, well, but that's something I think is important too, that teachers need to recognize is, is not only that we're learners, but let's think about how people learn and that mm -hmm. it's messy and that it's okay. Because I think there are a lot, including myself, of perfectionists out there that want to get everything exactly perfect before they do it. We also know that that is not possible, you know, with many of these things as we're learning and to give themselves some grace. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The messiness of it for sure. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, when you think about it, I, that's also great advice, Garnet, the idea of thinking about adult learners, adult learners love a level of autonomy. So can we find multiple mm -hmm. points of entry into how this work can unfold and, and can we show them the connection between the different ideas and how this enhances the efficiency and effectiveness of their work, uh, right. the clarity that they gain. I think that, you know, too often when we get excited as individuals about making changes, we want everybody to catch up to our level mm -hmm. of enthusiasm instead of taking our time and getting it right and laying the foundation for long-term success. I think that's really great advice. Two questions left, uh, Garnet, as we finish up here. And the first one is, uh, they're both questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. And here's the first one. Uh, and you could take this in any direction that, that you'd like, but the question is quite simple. Educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? For me right now in the context, uh, it's that I hear these calls to return to normal, mm -hmm. to return to what things were pre-pandemic and the pull. And I see it with assessment practices. I see that there was more grace afforded and reassessment afforded. And now it's like, nope we're back, we're pulling everything, you know, right back to where it was. And I think there are just so many lessons to be learned about what has transpired with kids um, that that makes me really nervous, honestly, is that we are so interested, I think, in getting back to normal that we really need to take a look at the practices and say, hey, what's best for kids here? Uh, you know, is, you know, incorporating more reassessment Mm -hmm. Is it, is it a bad thing? You know, it worked then and, you know, maybe there are feasibility things with that, but I really do. I have seen 
um, you know, post on social media about it, that we have got to return to this idea of normal. And uh, I, I don't think we ever get back there. I, I think, you know, now is, is the new normal, but who knows right. what it's going to be tomorrow. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if we can, you know, as you were talking there, I kind of in my head was thinking about the separation too. We, we want to return to, to a sense of normalcy and yet maybe we need to redefine what we mean by normal. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, yep. and we want that feeling of regularity and normalcy that we had yeah. pre-pandemic, but maybe we have to look and, and examine. Would you subscribe to that? Would that be something that you yeah. would think about? Yeah. Yeah, yeah re absolutely. Redefine and mm -hmm. redefine it. You know, what, what is it? And I think what you just said that was really important is that part of the reason that we want that is because we want the structure. Many right. times things got very unstructured in the pandemic because we're going virtual. We, you know, we're back in school, we're this and that, and and the structure was missing. So I do think that that's a big pull. It's mm -hmm. just not that we can't create new structure. Right, it's finding the balance. Cause I think obviously, mm -hmm. you know, there was such an acute intense reaction to the pandemic, you know, 20 months right. ago or so in March of 2020. And now it's almost like we want an overcorrection to go back to mm -hmm. February or January of 2020 instead of trying to find the balance between those two. Um, yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. Okay, last question as we finish up. And this question, again, I've asked everyone who's ever been on the podcast. It's a question about success. And the question is quite simple. If a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? I think success to me is ensuring that I'm focused on the process and not so much on the results. If if I get hyper-focused on where I want something to be, no matter whether it's professionally or personally, and lose sight of what's happening day to day, minute to minute, I don't get the results that I'm looking for many times. I, I really need to focus on that, focus on the day to day or the minute to minute, you know, professionally focus on that process when I'm working with teachers on assessment. You know, we definitely need to have a goal, but we can't just fixate there. Uh, we have to really focus on that process and the journey and how important that journey is because when I focus on that, usually the results are a little bit better <laughs> yeah. than if I get yeah. hyper, you know, focused on what I want it to be. Yeah. Um, so success to me, I mean, maybe that's just how it's generated, but it's where I have to be focused and centered, right? Yeah. Is that I'm focused on the process. I'm focused on the steps that I want to take. Um, and then being responsive to, to whatever it is that happens, personal, professional, that when things then come my way, what am I going to do? How am I going to, you know, continue to move forward with that process? Um, yeah. and, and so then I really feel like I, I can get to some of those results that I want. Um, mm -hmm. But I just know personally, if I get hyper-focused on the end, mm -hmm. then it just doesn't get there the way I want it to. <laughs> I, I, I love that because, you know, we think about so many things in life, the outcomes aren't guaranteed. And, you know, we don't always have control over the outcomes, but we definitely have control over the process. We have control mm -hmm. over what we invest in those experiences. And sometimes when things don't work out, that is a disappointment. And yet we have been successful because we invested in that journey or, or in that right. experience. I, I really, really love yep. that. Uh, listeners, you definitely should connect with Garnet on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is at Garnet underscore Hillman. Uh, and of course, I'll have a link to that in the show notes and also uh, connect with Garnet through the SBL chat. So that's hashtag SBL chat on Twitter as well. And if you haven't had a chance to be on that chat, 
would encourage you to do so. Uh, that chat has a really, uh, you know, long legacy now. Uh, as I said earlier, I, I've been a part of that chat years ago when it was under a different, you know, name, SBG, standards-based grading chat, and then it transitioned to standards-based learning. So a great way to connect with Garnet as well. So um, really would encourage you listeners to, to follow Garnet. It's great content. And certainly, as you've heard today, uh, wonderful insights in terms of how you can grow your own assessment literacy and help uh, your school or your faculty move in that direction. So Garnet, uh, I, thanks so much for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. And this was great. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to focus on the power of conversations as formative assessment evidence. Now, over the past few weeks in my work with schools and individual teachers, I find myself again and again coming back to engineering conversations among students as an efficient and effective formative assessment strategy. Now, engineering conversations among students, I think, is one of the most underutilized formative assessment strategies out there. I mean, Dylan William has been talking for years about the importance of activating students as learning resources for one another. Now, we know that for some, mistakenly, formative assessment has to be a thing, a noun, a tangible, a summative that doesn't count. So they hesitate to think of, say, table talk as a valid assessment strategy. Again, that's a mistake because we're talking formative assessment, more to the point, using assessment formatively, using assessment evidence formatively, where evidence is evidence, and everything students do has the potential to influence the decisions we make in a classroom. Being hyper-focused on a tangible only results in a teacher missing out on seamless, real-time opportunities to make instructional maneuvers, to provide feedback, or to even accelerate learning based on what was heard. It also provides another opportunity for students to be more active in their own learning. By engineering multiple conversations within the classroom, we have a much broader, more active participation level. There's opportunities for peer assessment, to teach and assess collaboration. Uh, you know, the opportunities are endless. Now, honestly, you can't afford not to engineer conversations amongst your students, but you have to be purposeful. It's not just the old talk amongst yourselves strategy, right? Now, before I go on, I have to give a shout out to my co-authors, Cassandra Erkins and Nicole Dimmich, because we wrote about engineering conversations in our book, Instructional Agility. So I want to take this opportunity to highlight some of the big ideas that we wrote about in that book, that chapter. So the reason engineering conversations are so important is because as learners talk about their learning, they gain a deeper understanding of what it is they are actually learning. And teachers also gain deeper insight into what learners are thinking, which provides us with a more well-rounded picture of where they are, more accurate information to interpret. That allows us to make instructional maneuvers. So when we engineer conversations, we help learners gain a deeper understanding because they have access to others' thinking as well, and we gain a deeper insight as to what they're thinking, which allows us to get a clearer picture as to where they are. The benefits of engineering conversation, of course, we talked about the importance of obviously developing speaking and listening skills, uh, putting kids into groups to have conversations promotes group work and allows us to teach collaboration. And it puts students in the position where they can begin to co-create meaning with their, their classmates. For us, the benefits, of course, are continually gathering emerging evidence through these conversations in real time. And it helps us shift the power a little bit in the classroom, the balance of power in the classroom where now we have a much more active classroom and it's not all teacher centered. So when it comes to engineering conversations in your classroom, it's important that we think about some things in order to 
you know, not be haphazard and arbitrary about it. We want to err on the side of intentionality and leave nothing to chance. Okay. So the first thing we think about when we think about engineering conversations, you want to clarify the expectations of that conversation. One important first step, as I'm saying here, involves making sure that learners understand what a quality and non-quality example of a conversation would look like. So they can be clear on the criteria and they can actually be reflective and measure their own success within that conversation. We want them to be able to know that they are having a productive you know, learning conversation. So we could show them examples, we could walk them through a protocol on something maybe that was low stakes, maybe engineer a conversation that has nothing to do with, with their learning, but just a way to practice the conversation so they can get a feel for what quality looks like. So make sure they understand what the expectation is of what a productive conversation would look like and what the criteria would be. The second thing we want to think about is varying the discussion formats, the rules, the roles, the responsibilities, right? Because almost every speaking and listening standard, whether you look at Common Core, whether you look at state standards, whether you look at provincial outcomes, you know, core competencies, whatever the sort of designated learning is, they all seem to typically require learners to engage in a variety of discussion formats, a variety of group sizes, partners, different protocols, et cetera, right? Alternative perspectives, just there's a whole host of, of sort of expectations around the things that, that learners will experience and varying topics as well. And of course the topics need to be age appropriate, but uh, we're making sure that these are, are meaningful topics that they can talk about. So. You know, it's important that students take on various roles uh, because that gives them an understanding of being part of a group, part of a team, but it also gives them a little bit of empathy for others who are taking on certain roles themselves. It kind of creates that team. And if I'm not the leader of the conversation this time, if I'm not the facilitator, so to speak, I still understand what it's like to facilitate and therefore I can be empathetic when maybe some members of the team are not following along with the protocols or whatever. You understand what I mean. So. Uh, so vary the discussion format. So clarify the expectations of the conversation, vary the formats, the rules and, and responsibilities and the roles, right? Third, let's teach the language of engaging conversations, right? Learners often have, in, it's, at some point, they'll have limited experience with what it means to have a learning-focused conversation. And that puts them in a situation where often they feel uncomfortable about being in that role. So teaching them how to have the conversation, what the language of that conversation looks like. So provide them with you know, some constructs that can increase their confidence levels. They need the language of, say, academic transitions. They need uh, question stems or statements that can, can be used to reference their background preparation. They need prompts that will help them disagree with their, their classmates. You know, How do I disagree in a productive way? How do I uh, how do I push back, right? So prompts, protocols, sentence starters, uh, depending on the age of the students, of course, we want to teach them, um, you know, what I mean is that depending on the age will depend on the type of prompt you use. We want to teach them what the language of a productive conversation sounds like and feels like, okay? Number four, let's monitor the effectiveness of those individuals and those groups, right? It, listen, it is impossible to watch everybody. So as a teacher, you're going to walk and listen in formatively. Now, it's impossible to watch and listen to every single student when multiple conversations are happening all at once. So we have to find ways to be a bit more strategic about gathering evidence of effectiveness so that your feedback can effectively move individuals and groups forward in their proficiency. So assessment, as I've mentioned many times on the podcast before, assessment is always about adequate sampling. So think about an adequate sampling each time, like 
Today, I'm going to watch everyone, but I'm going to pay close attention to these three groups or these two groups or this group of seven students or five students. And you kind of rotate through the groups or through the students so that in your totality, you've actually in the end observed everyone. And lastly, just to think about uh, monitor the effectiveness of the conversations as a whole, right? Not every conversation is going to be a guaranteed success. You're not, not every one of them is going to be so epic and monumental. Use that opportunity when they don't go the way that you were hoping to. Use that opportunity to learn what works, uh, what doesn't work, uh, by reflecting on you know, the effectiveness or the degree to which the conversations were effective, were the tasks meaningful, uh, did quality evidence emerge? Were the prompts uh, provocative enough? You know, just, just take a look at it and reflect on whether or not it's being effective, right? So if we're going to use conversations in our classrooms, uh, clarify the expectations, vary the formats, teach the language of conversations, monitor the effectiveness for the individuals and the groups, and then monitor the effectiveness for us in making sure that we are actually putting students into meaningful uh, learning situations. Make sure there's enough substance behind the prompt, right? So a depth of evidence emerges, making the use of conversations worthwhile. Like it, discussing, unless we're talking about very young learners, having discussion around DOK1 types of outcomes and, and learning goals, et cetera, it seems a bit inefficient uh, most of the time. So when you're thinking about DOK2, you're, you're thinking about, you know, uh, asking the students to talk about how one thing affects another or the application of something they've learned. As, as you start to get into deeper conversations, you might be, and these are just examples, you, again, might be asking how one thing is connected or related to another. Um, maybe you're asking them to, as a team, draw a conclusion, draw an inference from what they're noticing. Um, maybe uh, they've come up with a solution, and your prompt to them is how to test the plausibility of the solution that they've come up with as they were researching, investigating, uh, whatever it might be. Um, asking the group to predict the outcome. If we changed a parameter, if we changed a variable, what do you think would happen? And talk about that, about the variability. And that way you're listening in on that and you're hearing the depth of understanding as, you, as they're having that conversation. Ask them to make an interpretation of a text or support the rationale, support it through a rationale, support the rationale for something. You know, formulating a theory, uh, maybe a theory, for example, why are some people more susceptible to misinformation than others? Uh, things like that. Now, if we're getting into DOK4, we may be talking about, you know, long-term, of course. We're asking students to, uh, you know, the, the group to develop a thesis or draw conclusions from multiple sources or maybe actually designing and conducting an experiment and talking about the parameters of that experiment and how they're going to gather information and, and think about all the different explanations and the results that could come out of that. We want them to articulate that so we can hear it. Um, how they can apply information from one text, maybe to another text, to develop an argument for the purpose of a debate. All those could be things that you could have. Those are just examples of things that you could have the students talk about. Again, just make sure they're talking about things that are worthwhile talking about and worth taking the time to create these conversations. Again, just to summarize, engineering conversations provides us with real-time formative assessment evidence, right? Most students can talk more than they can type or write, so you're likely going to get more well-rounded evidence from the student. You're probably going to get greater depth from them. You're going to get more active participation. Students are going to be more active in their own learning. Again, they can talk more than they typically can write or type, so it's going to be more involved. Students become resources for one another. 
When I'm in a group and we're having conversations, I have access to others' thinking, which helps shape my thinking. And that's the co-creating of meaning, right? We can teach through this collaborative conversation. We can teach collaboration in itself and all that that entails, right? Protocols for coming to consensus. How do we resolve conflict? All of those different aspects are part of that. We obviously can address the speaking and listening outcomes and standards uh, in our our, uh, curriculum. And using conversations creates more variety in assessment methods, right? So we're not just leaning on the written output or the typed output. I can't say this enough. Be thoughtful about the prompts and make sure there is substance to discuss. And then listen to them talk. And you'll gain so much insight into their thinking, their understanding, and their misunderstandings. All of that insight can't help but make you more effective and efficient in your instructional decision-making. Get your students talking, and you're likely to deepen their learning and deepen your understanding of where they are along their learning trajectories. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, and YouTube. Also, please email the podcast, uh, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com, if you've got questions for me or you've got suggestions for the podcast. Next week, my guest will be Brian Butler. Brian and I are going to talk about gifted education, but probably not in the way that you're thinking, so stay tuned for that. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. If you're so inclined, would love a five-star rating on there. It just goes a long way to spreading the word about the podcast. And as I say, you know, contest or not, and congratulations to Heidi, and and certainly thank you to all of you who've participated. But contest or not, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues on social media. I really do appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. 